0: Check, check. Okay. Looking at restoring worship is the title of the message this morning, and I like to start out by telling you a story I came across earlier this week. A story about a rescue squad paramedic who was being interviewed by the newspaper. And the reporter started by asking him the, the regular questions. How long have you been on the rescue squad? What made you want to become a paramedic? And what does your family think about the long hours? So they went through that and he was answering those questions. But then she asked him, what was the most challenging response? What was the most challenging call that you have ever made? And he said a few Sunday mornings ago, we got a call to respond to the Big Baptist Church up on the road in the middle of their Sunday morning worship service. We got there. One of the ushers met us in the parking lot to let us know that an elderly man of the church died in the middle of the service. He checked the man's pulse and breathing, and he was sure that he had passed away. The reporter had a confused look on her face and did not really see the big deal about this. And she said, "Uh, what was so challenging about that? The paramedic looked at her and said, it wouldn't have been except for the fact we carried out six guys before we found the one who was really dead. Now, you may not get that, but you will after I make this next statement. Would you agree that that church possibly had a worship problem? Many churches today have a worship problem. Some feel more like a hospital morgue than they do a worship service. The opposite end of that is some feel like American Idol competition more than a worship service. And both these extremes are problematic. And extremes are easy to identify, aren't they, and see that they're wrong. But how do we know what is right and wrong in worship? And can we know? Oh, do we have to make conclusions about the worship the way I make conclusions about art? I'm not an art expert, so when I look at art, I either like it or I don't. Uh is it one of my preferences or not? Is that how we are to make conclusions or judgments about worship? Well, I sincerely hope not. Because worship's not about you, it's not about me, it's not what appeals to me or appeals to you. Worship is all about one person, and that person being. God. That's what worship is all about. About worshiping him, putting him first. And it's his worship that we see that he's restoring in Jerusalem as we turn to our story back in Ezra chapter three. Now when the seventh month come came, and the sons of Israel in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Yushua, the son of Josiach, and his brothers, the priest, and Zerubbabel, and the son of Shetiel, and his brothers arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it. as is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they set up the altar on this foundation, for they were terrified because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on to, to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. They celebrated the Feast of Booth, or the Feast of Tabernacles, as is written, and offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily, according to the ordinance, as each day required. And after, there was a continued burnt offering, also for the new moons and for all the fixed festivals of the Lord. They were consecrated. And from everyone who offered a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. Then they gave money to the Mations and carpenters and food, drink and oil to the Sidians and Tyrenes, to bring cedar wood from Lebanon to the Sea of Joppa, according to the mission they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now when the seven months came and the sons of Israel are in the cities, on the Jewish calendar, this is the month of Tishri. For us, would be mid-September to early October. And on the first day, they would celebrate the new year. That also would have celebrated the Feast of Trumpets. Now, Leviticus chapter 23, verse 24 and 25, we read about this feast. Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first of the month, you shall have rest. A reminder by blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation, You shall not do any laborious work, but you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. This is called Rosh Hashnot, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. It literally means head of the year, and is celebrated as a one-day holiday. Now, I can't help but think, as we dive into this text, it tells about this month. that so happens to be a Jewish New Year, and they just come back into Jerusalem. Coincidence? I think not. On the 10th day of that month, they would have the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. From the 15th until the 21st, they would celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles or the Feast of the Booths. And that's the thing. They would live in these these little huts made of palm branches, little tents. And that would remind them how God provided for them in the wilderness. Remember, they they came out of Egypt and they sent spies to the Promised Land and Ten of them came back and said, we can't do it too. Joshua and Caleb came back and said, yes, we can. And God got upset and they had to wander the wilderness. So that's, there's reminding them of that time when God was still out there taking care of them. And then it was also in the seventh month at Tabernacles that Solomon gathered the people together when he dedicated the first temple. You can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 8 verse 2. It's interesting that it just so happens to be the Jewish New Year. All these festivals are coming up, and now they're back in Jerusalem. Keep that in mind as we move forward. Now, remember, they just made this incredible journey from Babylon back to Jerusalem. And they had already taken an offering up. And perhaps they were getting settled in. If you've ever moved, you know how hectic can be for the first few months. Uh, you get there and you unpack the necessities, but then you have all these other boxes. And sometimes we live with a room. And we all have them, either a closet or a room, that we never really unpack anything. It just kind of sits in there, doesn't it? So, they're there in the middle of moving, and it was time for worship. What did they do? Did they stay home to get stuff done? After all, they had just come to Jerusalem, had already given tithes, they had done their duty, Perhaps they just wanted to stay home, but no, they stopped what they were doing and headed back to Jerusalem. Why did they do that? For the sole purpose of worshiping God. And as they came together, look how the text says how they gathered. The people gathered as what? As one man to Jerusalem. That demonstrates a strong sense of community. They had a common bond of faith in God, a common purpose to worship and obey Him. Come together as one man. In New Testament, we come together as one body. Now, here at Forestburg Baptist Church, we're diverse, and maybe not as diverse as the Lord would us to be, but we are. None of us in this room have all the same tastes. We don't come from all the same places. Some of us, even though we grew in Virginia, are still called a Yankee here in Texas. I don't know why. I heard that. But the the fact remains that none of us all have the same abilities or gifts, right? We're all gifted in different areas. We have different abilities. It's not a question of being inferior to one another, but it complements us in pursuing the work of God, right? All these different people coming together with that one common goal. And when we gather together, we go for that one goal, making our worship God-centered rather than self-centered. Are you familiar with the song, Family of God? Now, remember, I'm called to preach but not to sing, so bear with me. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain. Cleansed by his blood, joint heirs with Jesus as we travel this side. For I'm a part of the family, the family of God. Look at that. (laughs) Do we really worship that way? Do we really lack? like we're so glad that we're a part of the family of God? See, when we worship, to restore worship, here's the point, is to worship together as a family. More, Okay, let's break it down. My immediate family, but also my church family. It's coming together, encouraging one another, praying for one another. It's uh, no coincidence to me that it so happens, that's what we're talking about this morning, in light of what's going on in our country. Still gathering together. Praying and encouraging, seeking God together. So we need to worship as a family. Then we see Yusua, the son of Josiah and Zerubbabel. These two leaders come together with their people to build a altar. Now, as the people are gathering, there's nothing there. The temple's not there. As we find in the later verse, there's a foundation of an altar there, but they start building of it. So I want you to picture these people gathering together. And as we're gathering together, their focus is now drawn on attention of what their worship is. It's drawn to the altar, the altar that belongs to God. So their focus of their worship now draws their attention. So they're gathering in everything else that they've been thinking about seems to dissipate, goes away as they focus in on that altar, reminding them of God. That's how it should be for us. As we gather together, we come in this place. We all have many concerns, worries, anxieties. As we gather together, we need to let those things push out and stay focused on what our worship is really about. To focus on God and specifically hearing his word. Look what it says. They built the altar of the God of Israel as it is written in the law of Moses. So they're building the altar in accordance with historical precedents. David built an altar there before there was a temple, 2 Samuel chapter 24 verse 25. They followed the instructions of the law of Moses. In other words, they built the altar with, the altar with field stones and not dress stones. In Exodus chapter 20 verse 25, if you make an altar of stone for me, you shall not cut it You should not build it of cut stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you will refrain it. So they had to get regular stones to build this altar. They couldn't cut them. They had to go gather them and build them as they were. And on that altar, they would offer burnt offerings to the Lord. Anticipation of the Messiah. Some of them probably understood at that point. Some of them did not. They had prophecy that one was going to come. Isaiah had prophesied about it. But on that altar, they offer burn offerings to the Lord. Now, we call this first of all, soapbox. This is not a stage. I'm not an actor. This is a platform. But we refer to it as an altar sometimes, right? Now, we're not performing sacrifices up here per se, but we call it an altar because this is the place where we lay down our lives and sacrifice ourselves to God. Jesus says to follow him, we must take up our cross daily and follow him. That's self-sacrifice. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, So that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So as we gather this place. Our thoughts should be gathered in and from all our outside distractions and focus on presenting ourselves a living sacrifice acceptable to God. How do we do that? By the renewing of our mind, hearing the word. So as we come in, we need to focus on the word. Hearing the word, proclaim, listening to the word and applying the word. Worship has very little to do with style. No style of music in of itself is worshipful. See what is worship? Now bear with me, worship is building an altar, if you will, that we sacrifice ourselves to. So worship to restore worship, we must die to ourselves. And most of the time, that's a moment-by-moment, day-by-day action that we have to do because we are naturally prideful. We want it our way. We want to do things our way. And we come to God, we must empty ourselves, sacrifice ourselves, say, God, here I am. It's letting go. And I know for most of us, Myself included, that can be a scary thing. Say, God, here I am. Use me anywhere you want. But there's also a security in letting go. Imagine for a moment the stars. Ever seen the stars outside? That's where I like living out in well, I'm in Bellevue now. But you look out, and you see the stars. All right, you ever done that? Look at the moon. If God, which He does, calls all those stars by name. Every night. He maintains this universe by the power of His Word. The planets, the stars, the sun. The, think about the earth. Just wide enough so we don't burn up on one side when we face the sun or freeze on the other when we go tonight. This, the, the earth tilts us enough to give us the seasons. He's in charge of all that. He takes care of all that to the microscopic things we do not see except with a microscope. If God, which He can, Can take care of all that when I say God here I am use me any way you want don't you think he can take care of me and take care of you perhaps I'm not making light of this I don't like to see loss of life on any level but perhaps God is allowing this virus and all these things to happen to slowly strip us away as a society, what we hold to be true for security, our jobs, our money, the stock market. And he's ripping those things away to drive us to our knees when we have nowhere else to turn but him. Perhaps that's what we see going on. And I thought about it as I prepared this message, how God is restoring his worship back with his people and you see them build this altar, they, they're offering these burnt offerings on it. And to restore worship is for us to die to ourselves. Look what it says, they set up an altar on its foundation for they were terrified. Why were they terrified? Because the text tells us because people of the land. Who are these people? The Babylonians who have conquered, perhaps Jews who stayed behind, who compromised their faith. But they were terrified of them, but they did it anyway. See, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the will to act in spite of that fear. And that's what God is calling for you and I to do in the midst of the crisis we find ourselves today. In my concern, in my little feel for, yeah, I'll be honest, yeah, I'm a little scared what could happen. But courage is doing what is right in spite of that fear. And that courage that I need can only come from God. See, they recognized back then of only partially that their power consisted not in armies, but in the knowledge and the service of God. And they were determined to worship God according to the ancient specifications. Think about it. It had been over three generations since Jewish people had been in there. And all these other people who left behind, they were fearful of them. They were suspicious of what they were doing. And let's face it, suspicious people are not usually very friendly. Perhaps it would have been better if they had just tried to blend in, to quietly worship God in their homes in small groups. However, instead of giving into that fear, they claim their freedom, they worship God publicly and freely. Freedom is publicly worshiping God, no matter what the consequences may be. And we see this through the course of time. We are Forestburg Baptist Church. Why is that Baptist there? Historical lesson. You go back in time. There was a group of people called anti-anabaptists, uh, which means rebaptized. They'd rediscovered believers' baptism, that you are baptized when you can understand what baptism, forgiveness of sins, who Jesus is. They didn't do infant baptism. So they practiced believers' baptism. That's what that word. Baptist means, that we believe in believer's baptism. But they understood that when they did that, they were breaking ranks with the church at the time. They knew they would be killed, burned at the stake. All these horrible things would happen, but they did it in spite of knowing what the consequences were. Ask believers now in Islamic countries what worshiping freely really is all about. See, worshiping freely has nothing to do with saying amen or hallelujah, although there's nothing wrong with that. Worshiping freely has nothing to do with clapping your hands or not, which is nothing wrong with that. But worshiping freely is worshiping God, focusing on his word, obeying him. Let the word transform you in spite of any consequences may they have. What would... it? What would our invitation time, it's called invitation because it applies to me. We hear God's word, read it. Now we're invited to respond to it, to apply it. What would happen if we really responded the way God's really inviting us to do? That all the fear was absent. That we didn't care what people thought across the way. We think all we wanted to do was to please God and obey him. Would it look any different? See, invitation time is a time for people to come to the saving knowledge of Christ. It's time for people can come and join the local body here. But the invitation time is much more open than that. It's time for all of us to respond. To lay our concerns down before him. To open up and, and freely say, God, here I am. Here it all is. I, I give it up. I, I can't control none of this. God, I need you. See, to restore worship is to worship freely. Regardless of any consequences. Regardless of what the law of the land says. Regardless of any A response we may see from our friends or family, but just to finally let go of everything and say, God, here I am. Use me any way you want. And I would tell you, if you go back and look in history, you will see God take the most unlikely people to do the most extraordinary things with. Look at the disciples. None of them had a seminary education. They weren't the best educated people. But yet because they laid their lives down and said, God, use us, they turned the world upside down for Christ. They didn't have the Internet. They didn't have telephones. They didn't have mass transportation. They walked everywhere they went. And they faced huge persecution, and their story never changed. Not one iota. God will take the humble, who are truly sold out to Him, to do the most extraordinary things with. Tells us in our text they celebrated the feast of the tabernacles, they offered the fixed number of burnt offerings. They looked at the calendar where they were right then from that date. They did everything. As you read them to verse seven, they started with the next. Feast on the calendar, the Feast of the Tabernacles. They did it just the way they were supposed to. They started doing the daily sacrifices the way they were supposed to. The continual burnt offerings, all the other feasts, the offerings that were required, they were just picked up. Now, here's an interesting thing that we should remember. Remember how many people came back. There was over 42,000 people. But remember last week, uh, two weeks ago, we talked about, The Levites and the priests, not a lot of them came back. In fact, there was more people than there were priests. So you had this, the remnant there. You didn't have enough priests that were really required to do all these things, but yet they did them. They didn't go down the list and say, well, we can't do that one. We don't have enough people or can't do that. We don't have enough money. Since we have so few people, let's do only the basics. Instead, they did everything that was required to do to serve God. They didn't do it halfway. They didn't have for more money or more people. To restore worship is their worship fully. That means you give everything. You don't skip anything. No matter how less the people or how great the people. Look around us. We're down a little bit. That should not stop me from preaching fully the word of God and preach it to one person as I would a hundred. It does not matter. That's what it means to worship fully. You do worship. What God's called you to do regardless. And by the way, you can never fully worship until you do the work. In other words, this place in here is like training. This is where we get together to use a sports alley with our coach or with our commander to get our marching orders. And we come here to get our, our batteries recharged and to hear the word and to, and to make sure we're a clean vessel to be used. That's the reason we, we, on Wednesday nights, it's not in the Bible that we should meet Wednesday nights. It's the middle of the week. You've been through the week. Perhaps you're wearing down. So we start meeting on Wednesday nights to get that recharged up to hear the words. So we can go back out there and make a difference. But see, we can come in here and worship all we do. We can come in here and worship all day long. But what really matters is what we do outside those walls. Instead of coming into church like it's a. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? We should not come in here looking for come in here like it's a a hospital, so to speak, or someone seeking a physician to be healed, although that can be appropriate. We should come into church like a doctor goes to medical school to train up one-on-one evangelism, group evangelism missions. We have a group right now on missions in Louisiana, some of some adults. Some sponsors and the youth are out there doing it. Mission work, church planting. But we can never fully worship without doing the work of the Lord outside this place. Illustrate that one step further. When you come and you worship God, you don't hold anything back. You worship publicly and freely. We worship as a family. And you come before God. God's going to tell you to do something. He's going going to direct you what you need to do. And so now we have to make up our minds. Are we going to do what God tells us to do regardless of what it is? We gather as one man and worship. Do we gather as one man and worship as a family? Do we worship in accordance with the word of God? Do we worship freely no matter what's going on around us? When we, we worship... And then we take it outside these walls to do what God is telling us to do. Are you or are we doing this, really? That's why my question is, are we, are we following this example that we find in Scripture? If not, we need to restore our worship. And I would ask you to commit your focus and your energies on receiving the Word of God because only by receiving the Word of God can you and I be transformed. Commit to coming in the service. Never leaving in the same way in which you came in. When you come into service, come in with anticipation that something is going to be different with you when you walk out those doors. Because we are meeting with the living God, correct? We are worshiping the eternal God. Just being in his presence alone should change us. I think that's what the unbelieving world finds so hard to believe. If we claim to meet with this God, who's so powerful, all-knowing, and do all these things, if we meet with this God Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and nothing ever changes, that's what they find hard to believe. See, the challenge becomes, first of all, I think for all of us, the fear of really responding to the call of God on our lives, and then going out and falling up in action. So we might be a little fearful in here if we got and we surrendered everything and might be fearful what people may say or do among our own family of God to some degree. But it's even harder when you walk out those doors. Because in here we know most of us, if not all of us, have a relationship with God through Christ. We love God. We want to serve God. We want to see things happen, right? We want to see people come to the gospel, don't we? Yes. But when you walk out those doors... And you really understand the love of God that he has for everybody. <laughs> and you understand what it really means to live out the gospel. It can get a little scary sometimes. Because it's not about me anymore. It's all about him. How does, how does God want me to interact with people? When I'm driving or shopping or at work. So commit to never leaving his service the same way you've entered into it. No matter what barriers may pop in your life, do not allow them. Do not let them get in the way of your worship. And here's the one I was looking for. Don't come to church like a sixth person goes to the hospital. or Rather, come like a doctor who goes to medical school. I'm looking out around, this, around you all this morning. I pretty much know everybody here. All of you, at one point or another, told me you have a relationship with Christ. So we have the answer, right? We have the treatment. What's wrong with our world? Very basic answer: big umbrella, sin. We know that, right? All of us, that's, what's hap- thats what's wrong. It starts with sin, comes out in greed, jealousy, all these other. But we know the problem is sin. We know what the answer is to sin, don't we? Jesus. So we know that we know the disease. And what we see happening in our society is the symptoms of that disease, and we know who the cure is. When we go around telling people what that cure is, that's what our job is, that's what God allows us to do. And when you see somebody truly surrender to the gospel, it just will blow your socks off to see how. Powerful the gospel is when it Changes somebody's life like that It's unbelievable God can take the biggest mess The biggest hurt And turn it around The cross What's the cross Symbolized to you When you think of the cross what do you think about We think about the power Of God forgiveness of God The mercy of God we want to worship at the foot of the cross. We we embrace it, the power of it and what it stands for. But if you were a first century Jew and you looked at that cross, you didn't see all that. You saw a criminal. You saw the lowest of the low. You saw the most worst way to die for the worst people in society. If you're a Roman citizen, you would, and if you were convicted of a crime, you wouldn't be put to death that way. It was the most horrific way to die. The Persians invented it, but the Romans perfected it. How could they put you to death, but slow it down so much that you just be in agony? What do you think of, when you think of Huntsville, and you think Of the death house, people on death row. What kind of character people do you usually think about? Think of the most outstanding citizens? Let's be honest. No, we don't. That's what the first century Jew, that's how we look at the cross. So God took something so hideous, so nasty, and turned it around to his glory. And that's the cross. Because look what it symbolizes today. We have crosses all over the place because of what they mean to us, what what God accomplished on that cross through his son. Come to worship, but leave to serve. There is a world that needs Jesus, and may our worship lead to that salvation. So when the people come in, visitors come in, guests come in, and they see us being completely sold out in our worship to God, that's going to draw. What's going on here? They're going to be drawn to that. There's something different here. They, they actually believe what they say. The example we find in these Jews that lived so long ago that they're on a land and they were, they were scared. They were terrified. But yet they were determined to worship God in that place. They didn't have all the people they needed, probably didn't have all the resources they needed, but God was working and they decided, you know what, no matter what happens, we're going to do this. We're going to follow them, regardless of the circumstances. And as you read on in Ezra, you'll find the highs and the lows. But we need to follow their example. We need to worship God as a family. Look around you. Brothers, sisters in Christ, we're used to each other. We'll be in heaven together forever. Now, granted, there won't be no more sin there. and you know, But, you know, we're going to spend eternity with each other. And what binds us together is so much stronger than anything the world can try to unite us with or take us apart. Have ever occurred to you that really at the heart of this virus, I'm not making light of it, it's only deadly, but it's really trying to separate us out even more. Surely we need each other. That's why solitary confinement is the worst form of punishment in prison. You put somebody in there without any human contact at all in a dark place, after a period of time, a person will go insane. It's proven. That's the reason they put limits on that sort of stuff. But we need each other. We need to worship without any fear. Perfect love. God cast out all fear. And we need to completely come to him, sold out to him, emptying myself. As my preaching professor, Dr. Stephen Smith, told me, preach as you're dying to yourself. Die to yourself and exalt Christ. So what is God calling you to do? Maybe calling you to do something a little different this morning. Maybe you're feeling that tug on your heart. You're not quite sure what he's calling you to, but he's calling you to something. And perhaps it's as easy as this. Will you trust me? Will you trust me? What are we holding back? What are we holding on to? My prayer is that all of us, including myself, will learn to let go even more and allow him to have complete and utter control. But as I submit to you this morning, death is what the world needs. People completely sold out to God, obeying him in everything. That means loving our neighbors, loving our enemies, praying for those who persecute us, It means giving freely, not grudgingly, with a cheerful heart. Give back to God. God says, test me now in this and see if I won't open the windows of heaven to bless you with it. And I'm going to end with this. And this speaks to me probably more than you. I don't know. What am I so afraid of? God has proven himself trustworthy time and time and time and time again. I mean, after all, if I am to pass on from this earth, nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And this life and the life to come, he has me covered. Till I'll give you what you need. I'll be with you. I'll never leave you. I won't rescue you from the storm, but I'll walk your way through it. And Jesus is not asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done himself. Can you see him? Close your eyes just for a second. Just bear with me. Can you see Jesus at the right hand of the throne of God? Calling out to you, say, come on. Follow me. I blaze the trail. Follow me. Come on. Get your eyes off over there, look at me, come to me. Just like you would do a little toddler when they learn to walk. Don't look over there, look at me, look at Paw and I'll take your first step. Come on, you can do it. What an illustration of a loving father talking to his son or to his daughter.